0: Okay, what's going on over there? Okay, lady. Me, my dad and my brother we're working in a truck in our backyard and we just see in a corner of our eye something fall down from the sky and then we hear like a lot of footsteps near us and there's a there's like an eight foot person beside it and another one's inside it, and it has big eyes and looking at us. I
1: swear to god this is not a joke, this is actually really so weird two- terrified. UFOs, spy planes and Nevada. When people hear those words, they generally associate them with one place Nevada's famous and mysterious Area 51. Area 51.
2: Area 51.
1: Area 51. Area
2: 51. Area 51. Is real. What is the government hiding inside? Is it secret weapons or extraterrestrial technology?
1: But if something strange is drifting overhead, maybe it's not actually from outer space it could have been part of the state's role as a test site for some of the most cutting-edge aircraft ever developed. And we're,
0: we're in the debris field now. Titanium. It's a piece of a spy plane. Probably uh, some structural piece.
1: Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host today, Joey Lovato, and on this episode, I'll head out into the Nevada desert with nuclear physicist and aerospace enthusiast Taylor Wilson, indie videographer Tim Leonard, and former intern Alex Kuro to search for the wreckage of a crashed spy plane that went down in the late 60s. It's a window into a fascinating chapter of history in the Silver State. The infamous Area 51 outside of Las Vegas in the Nevada desert has garnered a lot of attention in the last 40 years for its secrecy. From a viral meme where people plan to storm the military base,
2: the plan was to rush the gates and
1: break into Area 51 to see them aliens. To books and pop culture references from the 80s with speculation that scientists there were researching aliens and their spacecraft.
2: According to the radar, that thing is right over us.
1: The real story might be like science fiction, but it's more grounded here on Earth, when the Cold War prompted aerospace advancements that are still shepherding us into the future of flight today. So a lot of what comes out of Area 51 is test flights for cutting edge aerospace technology like stealth airplanes and drones, and much of it is top secret until something becomes declassified sometime in the future. But we know that in the 60s, the site was used for testing the Blackbirds, which encompassed six different models of plane under the CIA first, and then later on the Air Force. The Blackbirds were the first real stealth aircraft, and they were a successor to the U-2, an early reconnaissance aircraft that is still in use today.
2: When the CIA was developing the U-2 spy plane back in the mid-1950s, they obviously needed a place to test it.
1: That was Peter Merlin, an aviation historian and writer who has been studying Area 51 and aviation history for more than 40 years. His book, Dreamland, The Secret History of Area 51, is considered by some to be the seminal text on the near-mythical military base. You heard him mention the U-2, which was kind of the original spy plane, and the precursor to a lot of the other aircraft that we're going to be talking about in this episode.
2: Now, normally, a new airplane would be tested at some place like Edwards Air Force Base. I mean, that was the place to test things. The CIA said, no, that's just too public. It's kind of an open base. It's around a lot of communities. You know, it's not far from Los Angeles. It's just too many people would see the plane and be able to start figuring out things about its performance. So a couple of the guys from Lockheed went out. They flew all over Southern California, Southern Nevada, looking for a place that would be remote peter told me that the cia
1: thought a dry lake bed would make a perfect place to land planes most of the options were just too public though but there was one dry lake bed called groom lake off the corner of the nuclear test site that was perfect
2: so cia agreed to pay for building a, an airfield off the corner of the lake bed and it was right next to the nuclear test site so they could take advantage of the atomic energy commission's resources and security protocols that was already an area that was you know, pretty much off-limits. It's, it's seemingly remote.
1: Okay, and I know you're thinking, where are the UFOs? When are you going to find out about crashed spy planes? Well, there's a reason why Area 51 ended up in Nevada.
2: The nuclear test site had been established in 1951. And so they'd been around, they'd already been setting off nukes and things like that. Starting in the 50s,
1: nuclear bombs were tested there regularly until 1992. It's the largest military-controlled area in the United States, spanning 2.9 million acres of land and 5,000 square miles of restricted airspace, accounting for more than 4% of Nevada's total land area.
2: They've got that so ingrained in the general consciousness that if you say Area 51, the first thing someone will think of is aliens, when they should be thinking airplanes. Number four is targeted. One, two, five, 23, 25,000
1: Okay, so now this is where our guest Taylor Wilson comes in. Taylor is a nuclear physicist by trade and an amateur aerospace enthusiast. I'm a big
0: student of history and particularly the history of science and technology. And this, to me, is one of the most interesting facets in the history of science and technology. And this is an SR-71 Blackbird, which is amazing because it was designed in the 1950s.
1: So, the SR-71 Blackbird was a spy plane developed during the Cold War that, to this day, holds the record for the fastest manned air-breathing aircraft flying more than three times the speed of sound. It could fly from LA to New York in 65 minutes. Its first flight was in 1964. Of the 50 total Blackbirds spanning the six different models that were created, 20 of them crashed. Six of those crashes happened during testing and training in and around the Nevada test site and training range which encapsulates Area 51 and the Nevada test site.
0: To build this aircraft, the scientists and engineers that developed it had to come up with a wide range of new materials, new manufacturing techniques, new design principles. The amount of things that were new on this plane are incredible. It was the first plane to be made primarily out of titanium because titanium was the only metal that could handle the heat associated with uh, supersonic flight in this regime, three times the speed of sound. It was the first aircraft to integrate large amounts of composites, which now most aircraft are made using a lot of composite uh, construction. It was an entirely new engine design to deal with supersonic Mach 3 plus flight. It was the first stealth aircraft. So many things about this aircraft were incredibly ahead of their time and it's probably no surprise that this thing spawned a lot of UFO reports.
1: When it comes to testing spy planes, there has to be some level of secrecy. Peter told us about some of the steps that were taken in order to develop the U-2 spy plane.
2: There was a cover story for the U-2 saying it was a weather research aircraft, supposedly by the NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NASA's predecessor, with Air Force support. And in fact, the CIA when so they groom lake had bogus NACA markings painted on them.
1: You'll hear Groom Lake a lot, which is the actual dry lake bed that Area 51 is located on. And sometimes you may hear Watertown Airstrip, which is the airstrip inside of Area 51. So Groom Lake, Watertown Airstrip, and Area 51, for the purposes of the story, are the same place. So with the secrecy around the U-2 and the Blackbird programs, comes some speculation about Area 51.
2: For a long time there, I always encountered the sort of conventional wisdom that area 51 was such a secret place that the government denied its existence. But the re- the real story is that of course, when Watertown airstrip, the first U2 camp was being built, the CIA of course, wasn't going to take any responsibility. They, they remained in the background. They used the atomic energy commission as their shield. So the Atomic Energy Commission put out this press release that was actually written by
1: the CIA, and it basically said, "Hey, we're going to be opening up a, a new airfield with some
2: hangars. Uh, that's going to be a support facility uh, off off the corner of our land." And they they kind of hoped that that would just make it seem completely innocuous and, and that nobody would think about it or care. But that press release was sent out to a lot of newspapers, radio, and television stations around the southwestern United States, and Within just a few months, there was there was an accident where Air Force transport plane was carrying people to Groom Lake crashed. And this, of course, got a, a fair amount of publicity. And the newspaper in Las Vegas described Groom Lake as the super-secret proving ground within the proving ground. So that early, 1955, just months after the initial announcement of it being built, it was already being thought of as a super-secret place that had something unusual about it that didn't pass the smell test with regard to just ordinary nuclear-related stuff. In
1: 1957, the CIA realized it needed to start working on newer, better spy planes as Soviet missile technology was advancing and made the U-2 vulnerable. So the military awarded Lockheed Martin the contract to build the better spy plane. And the engineer of the U-2, Kelly Johnson, was also up for the task of building its successor.
2: Kelly Johnson was working on trying to lower the radar signature of a plane, make it stealthier. This is actually before the term stealth was even coined. Johnson convinced the CIA to fund reopening Watertown airstrip, which they did in 1959. Well, it ended up getting called Project 51. That was just the name of that construction project. And so the place where it was done ended up on the maps as Area 51. So the CIA said, all right, we'll put out the money and turn this Area 51 into a full-scale air base. In the early 1960s, they built it up, and that was, that was pretty much what made it a permanent facility. And the uh, agency was also beginning to experiment with other kinds of uh, drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, really some advanced stuff for the time.
1: So Area 51 was run by the CIA until it decided to get out of the aircraft business and handed over control to the Air Force, which has managed the base since the late 1970s.
0: So this thing was on a training mission and uh, we went over
1: Colorado, into Texas, New Mexico, back through Utah. On October 25th, 1967, an SR-71 Blackbird called Aspen 28 started its training flight at Beale Air Force Base in Northern California.
0: And they started their descent over Elko.
1: And then the pilot and reconnaissance officer lost control due to a failure of the guidance system and ejected.
0: And what happened is this plane flying along entered a bank. The pilot and the reconnaissance systems officer ejected.
1: And the plane continued into the ground. With the plane plummeting to the ground and digging a 60-foot crater on impact.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get out there, we have some maps, we have some maps from old accident reports and some, some research I've done to try to triangulate the location and we'll try to go figure out where this thing crashed. You need to pack up the ice chest. There's ice packs in there. I mean, I don't, I feel like I'm missing something, but probably not. Ooh, good call, I should put on some sunscreen. The only thing we gotta look out for is just big boulders. And there was the road I was looking for. You can come out of the wash on that path, see the hill over there, that's roughly the impact site.
1: So after several hours of driving and precarious off-roading, we parked the car, scrambled down and back up a small dry creek bed, and then started walking. We had one metal detector between the four of us that ventured out there.
0: You can see at the back end, see the the change in topography.
1: Yeah, it's right before that. So basically we've got right like uh, less than 100 meters to go. And I
0: think basically be looking down because you'll find debris. That is a piece of titanium. Wow, look here. at that little guy. But it's, it's clearly titanium. I mean, th- th- there's no mistaking this for another... It's kind hot. of aircraft of its era. I mean, this was this was such a unique plane.
1: It's so shiny and it looks like new for something that was been out here for almost 50 years.
0: What's crazy to me about this is that this titanium, do you know where it came from? No. To build the planes? No. Came from the Soviet Union. The very country that was being spied on was <laughs> the supplier of the titanium for this aircraft. Interesting. So the CIA had to come up with a cover story of a commercial supersonic transport jet to justify buying this titanium for the SR-71. Huh. But that's our first piece.
1: All right. If you'd like to see a visual of what the debris field looked like, Tim, our videographer, put together a video that goes along with this piece that you can find on our YouTube channel.
0: The original Groom Lake Area 51 aircraft, the U-2, those prototypes that crashed in Nevada, crash sites are still out here. Early A-12 prototypes, crashes out in Nevada. Like you're it. at the bleeding edge of technology and of aviation when you're pushing the boundaries, whether that's speed, altitude, performance, stealth, things go wrong, and those crashes happen. Now, a lot of those crashes have happened on the Nellis Range, close in, where the Air Force controls the property, but a lot of those crashes ha- happened beyond the boundaries of military-controlled property, okay. and those are the crashes we can go visit and learn about this history of aviation development.
1: And with that development, as we can see with the crash site that we visited, people have questions. In the crash report for Aspen 28 from the military, it says that there were no witnesses. But Peter told us about a similar crash that happened closer to Wendover, Nevada, involving a different Blackbird.
2: So that thing crashes and the government moves in and they take control of the area for as long as they need and then clean up everything they can get and haul it away to some secret place. And the cover story put out to throw people off the scent. There was a, a news photographer from Salt Lake City who had come out in a plane and try to get pictures of the site. And they tracked him down. They, they sent security people to his house and said, we want your pictures. I mean, does that not totally sound like men in black showing up to you know, cover up a UFO? If, if you look at crashes involving these secret Area 51 programs, and you listen to the narrative, it is almost identical to any classic UFO government crash retrieval story that you'll ever hear.
1: And while the crash outside of Wendover was cleaned up by the military, the crash of Aspen 28 that we were looking at was actually not cleaned up as well. Instead of the wreckage being hauled away, much of it was buried in the desert in the crater that was left behind by the crash.
0: Yeah, the crater would have been roughly right about here. Oh, you you had a cool find there. There's the part number. So we can figure out what part of the aircraft this comes from based on looking that up. Really? So it looks like 4AA4C, 2 asteris C LH. So we can look that up and figure out what part of the aircraft that
1: came from. But that's a, that's a cool piece. The more we hiked around, the more pieces we saw. <clears throat> By the time we had hiked about a quarter mile perimeter around where the impact crater would have been, we had seen hundreds of pieces. The ground was completely littered with metal and rubber and wire, and we even found what we thought might have been a seatbelt or a strap from the parachute. Where are we? It's funny,
0: you're out, you, you just start looking at the ground, all of a sudden you don't know where you are. Oh, look at this piece. That's aluminum. Not very much aluminum in the plane. And you can see aluminum doesn't hold up to the elements as well, it corrodes a lot more than the titanium does. But yeah, that was aluminum piece, which means it it didn't experience structural air friction heating. So it probably wasn't an exterior surface component or anything.
1: Okay, so to jump back to where a lot of UFO stories have their origin, we need to rewind a few years before Area 51 was created during the start of the Cold War, where, in 1947, an Air Force balloon crashed outside of Roswell, New Mexico. It was part of the top-secret Project Mogul, intended to help detect Soviet nuclear tests. But after the balloon crashed, the Air Force covered up the story by stating that it was a conventional weather balloon.
2: Roswell incident, which there's a great article about it in the Las Vegas Review-Journal from right at the time that it happened. And really, the whole story should have died right there. It should be nothing more than an obscure footnote to ufology. But of course, some authors in the late 70s revived it and turned it into a big Thing with alien bodies and stuff added into the mix. So again, it's something that became part of the the new UFO lore.
1: Peter explains that it's very easy to see how these secret military tests of new technology might be mistaken for something from another planet. The Blackbird looked like a dark black dart with these spiked engines that shot out blue flames in a cone shape. It had a matte finish on it, so it wasn't shiny. And it was more oblong and rounded on the edges than a traditional pointed plane. It doesn't look anything like what you would expect a normal airplane to look like.
2: It absolutely looked like something from out of this world. And the F-117, when it first flew, I mean, it's all flat flights. You wouldn't even think it could fly. It it looks like it just defies all the the laws of physics. And so many of these planes just have that that aspect to them. So, yeah, any number of those could, could easily engender you know, UFO reports. Uh, One of the planes they tested at Groom Lake in 1983 was an electric-powered unmanned aerial vehicle. I got to see that thing fly, and I got to tell you, seeing it in the early morning hours when they tested it, because that's when the winds were the most calm, it looked like it was just this bizarre UFO hovering over the dry light bed, and I just, like, wow, what am I looking at? For anyone who was not familiar with it, if you didn't know what that was, it would totally look like something from another planet.
1: So I asked Peter if the CIA or the Air Force was encouraging these UFO narratives as a way to keep the public thinking about aliens instead of trying to figure out if what they saw was some sort of top-secret project.
2: It's, it's a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, it makes for fantastic disinformation. It takes the, the viewer's eye to a different point start looking at other things instead of the things that you probably should be looking at. It's a distraction. But if I step out and tell someone, you know, yeah, I wrote a, a scholarly book on uh, the history of Area 51, the first thing they're gonna say is, oh, the place with the flying saucers and aliens? It's a way to short circuit people's brains. So th- that's the disinformation side that helps protect the security of Area 51. On the other hand, it turned Area 51 into a sort of an attractive nuisance because it creates so much public interest. The people show up, as I said, from all over the world. They'll go out into the middle of the desert with binoculars to try to see something, to see these flying saucers. And that sort of backfired on the Air Force, causes them to have to shut down their work.
1: In the 80s and 90s, though, the military was trying to expand their geographic footprint to stop people from watching these tests that were out on the range from mountaintops that were outside of military control.
2: And now you've got this whole new alien mythology tied to it. And that became ingrained into the public consciousness. I mean, there are websites, there are television shows, all manner of books and articles and whatnot. And so it just became a thing. And at first, of course, the people who worked out there hated it. They were just serious because it brought tourists from all over the world. So the Air Force had already taken nearly 90,000 acres of public land to Groom Mountain back in uh, the 1980s without any prior congressional approval, which had caused a big stink. And now they couldn't do that, but they could take the minimum amount that you could do with without congressional approval, which was a little under 5,000 acres. So they just took individual hilltops and you know, hoped that would at least partially solve their problem, which which it did.
1: So nowadays, the range is mostly used for testing aircraft's capabilities against different types of radar systems. Area 51 and the entire Nevada test site and training range have some of the most sophisticated radar and detection systems in the world to fly airplanes through in order to see how they fare against detection.
2: The Nevada test and training range, it's vast, it's unique. You can't really duplicate that anywhere else. In fact, with modern technology, they're even worried that the Switzerland-sized parcel they have is too small for modern war game.
0: We're also in an age of unmanned vehicles. So a lot of these new spy plane platforms are either entirely unmanned or they're optionally manned. And so the, the spy plane of the future may not have a cockpit, it may not have a pilot in the c- cockpit. The, the role of the SR-71 in some ways has continued on with the U-2, but also platforms like the Global Hawk, which is the Northrop Grumman Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Platform that does ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, basically taking pictures from the sky. And of course, spy satellites have gotten better. Now, we don't talk about those capabilities as a, as a, as a government, but those, those capabilities have gotten better and better. So you know, the eye in the sky may not be an air, aircraft, it may, it may be a satellite eye above.
1: So the SR-71 was retired in the 90s and the future of aviation appears to be dominated by drones. But that doesn't mean that some older technology isn't put to use from time to time. And while we may not see any SR-71 blackbirds flying in the sky anymore, that doesn't mean that there aren't new technologies and top-secret projects being worked on and tested every day in Nevada. And with that testing can come occasional crashes.
2: If you knew how many planes... And not even just military, but even just civil airplanes and whatnot have crashed in Nevada. You would wonder how it's even possible to take a step in the desert without landing on a piece of aluminum. Hey, this might sound like a really dumb question, but did you guys see anything fall out of the sky? Yeah. We got a call, and one of my partners actually said that they saw it too, so they're they're claiming uh, eight to nine foot tall green beings that were in their backyard. Sounds crazy, but you never know.
1: So for now, while there is little to no evidence of green men walking around Las Vegas from another planet, you might still come across some military helicopters and fighter jets training in the skies above Nevada. And if you're really lucky, you might get to see something mysterious that maybe one day will be declassified. I think your average Nevadan doesn't realize what's going
0: on in the skies above him or her on a given day. And and this aerospace development that led to the SR-71 Blackbird is still going on today. We're in a hypersonics revolution. We're trying to develop these new hypersonic platforms.
2: Area 51 started out as this temporary camp and then it grew into something much larger. It became a permanent facility uh, for the CIA and then eventually the Air Force and they've just continued to expand there. And we know about that because we can look at Google Earth satellite imagery. You see more and more hangars getting built out there and you say, wait a minute, they they already had nearly two dozen hangars. Why are they building more? Obviously they're not leaving hangars empty and building new ones. (laughs) There's there's stuff going on that we won't get to see for years and years until hopefully it gets declassified, if it does. So there's always gonna be a, a bit of a mystery.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I want to thank Taylor Wilson and Peter Merlin for being on the episode today. This episode was reported by myself, Joey Lovato, along with Tim Leonard and Alex Kuro, and our editor is Michelle Rendells. The music in today's episode was from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and myself. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by donating to The Nevada Independent, which is a nonprofit, by clicking on the donate button on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.